Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is David Rothkopf. I am your host. I am here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in your nation's capital. And I've gathered around me a great group of people to comment on what has been an extraordinary week in American life. This is a special episode. Let's call it Trump-pocalypse now. Um, And we have joining us From far away Australia, the only country in the world whose political system is more fucked up than ours right now, David Sanger of the New York Times. Hi, David. You know, great to be here. I I thought I'd escape to, you know, one place that would bring about sanity. And you're right, their system actually is more screwed up than ours, which is actually saying something right now. Yeah, no, it's really, it's quite remarkable. And perhaps we'll talk about that in a second, because there are a lot of deep state nerds in Australia for some reason. Um, Also joining us, we have uh, Sharon Weinberger, who is the DC bureau chief of Yahoo News. And we have Katie Fang, who's a trial lawyer and a legal analyst for NBC and MSNBC. And we need a legal analyst this week, given all the legal news. I felt as I was watching, particularly on Tuesday afternoon, a little bit like that old uh, ad you used to see of the guy sitting in a chair as the speakers blared at him and his hair was blowing back and, and, and so forth. You know, it was, it was really drinking from a fire hose. There was that one hour and like every minute there was some story breaking. Um, And the first thing I want to do is sort of get your reactions. Now we're sort of a day later. Uh, We've watched all the pundits. Trump has gone on Fox and Friends and said, you know, he thinks flipping ought to be banned and that, uh, you know, you know, Manafort's a good guy. And what are a few felonies among friends? And, you know, this whole you know, a uh, shtick of his to say, how could you impeach me? I'm doing a good job as president. Um, and, and, and we want to provide our sort of deep state radio nerds out there with a little, you know, more perspective on what does this mean and so forth. So I'm, first thing I'm going to do is go around to each of you and just sort of get a take. Is this really as extraordinary a week as it seems? Let me start with you, Katie. Well, I mean, number one, thank you for having me. Number two, clearly not as glamorous as David in Australia, but I do have some palm trees going for me in Miami. So I think that I get a little bit of credit for that. You know, it's been legal palooza the last maybe, what, 48 hours, and I don't think it's slowing down. I do. um, I'm always reluctant to use the adjective extraordinary, um, but it has been. And, And not because we have a sitting president who's now been alleged to have uh, participated in criminal conduct, because obviously we had that as far back as Nixon. But I do think the way that things have developed um, is pretty fascinating. And the fact that it's 
involved so many people so high up in the food chain and really, I mean, it's just the, the tightening of the proverbial noose now. And from a legal perspective, obviously, there's no shortage for people like me to opine about and read tea leaves about. But, you know, I, I, it's, it's interesting because I think that I, I just saw a um, – and I just tweeted out about this – that juror from the Paul Manafort trial, you know, she said, look, there was one lone holdout and, and it, otherwise it would have been 18 counts of, uh, of guilty against Paul Manafort. But one thing that she did say on Fox was she said, you know, we, we didn't really like Rick Gates testimony. So why am I saying this now to you guys? Well, because remember, the whole idea is what is the value in the cooperation for Robert Mueller? And, you know, ultimately, will you testify? Will you cooperate? And now we're looking at people like Michael Cohen, who currently doesn't have a cooperation deal, but maybe will be cooperating with the special counsel's office and, um, and other federal investigations. And we also have Paul Manafort, who's kissing up on his second trial in a couple of weeks in D.C. So I'm just, you know, trying to see the lay of the land now and see whether or not people are necessarily incentivized to cooperate. And if so, what are they going to get out of it? And, um, and what value add is it going to be other than the fact that we now have everybody else running to the forefront to try to, you know, cooperate with Mueller? And these are people that aren't even really targets. These are maybe, you know, Wesselberg over at the Trump organization. He could probably give us some good value, too. So anyway, I do find it to be extraordinary as a short of it. And I think that we are just beginning to see um, a fast unravel of Trump's world. Uh, well, it'll be interesting to see how fast, and we will come to that. Sharon, let me let me let me go down to you. Just what's what's your take covering this so, being in the middle of it? I think you know. I remember in May 2017 getting a news alert from the New Yorker with the Comey memo saying, "Is this the beginning of the end for Trump?" And then yesterday, getting another news alert: "This is the beginning of the end for Trump." You know, over a year later, uh, you know, people have been declaring the end of Trump. For a while. And I guess what I'd be really curious to hear, particularly from Katie, is that, I mean, Trump and his team have made very clear they're going to fight this out to the end. One of the interesting mm. things the juror that the Washington Post interview said was that the defense seemed very relaxed at trial and not too worried. And I have to suspect that part of that is because Manafort is expecting a pardon. So what I, you know, if there is a beginning to the end or a fast unraveling, there have to be mechanisms in place, which of course is the Mueller investigation. So the the reason why I'm saying that I think there's a fast unravel that's going to happen is, and, and maybe we're all thinking in the temporal sense of relativity there, right? But I think what I'm trying to say is people are going to now start running to Mueller and other federal investigators. Um, I mean, we just heard yesterday there was a subpoena served on Cohen vis-a-vis um, -vis that uh, investigation in terms of the campaign finance problems, tax problems, that organization has. So I think people are going to start really hauling ass to go cooperate and they're going to want to get there. And that is what I mean by the fast unravel before people were kind of slow rolling it because, you know, we don't really know what has Flynn said and, you know, what has um, he provided. And even now we see that Gates, okay, I'm not even sure what Gates said or did. I don't really think they needed Gates, frankly, for Paul Manafort's trial. So did Gates really give any value add in terms of Russian, um, I hate to use the word collusion, so I won't, the conspiracy um, that happened with Russia. Um, so I think people are now going to be trying to get to the forefront of the line to cooperate because they see what's going on. And, and by the way, this Cohen deal, 
you know, a lot of people are talking about the fact that there's no cooperation explicitly in it, but it doesn't mean that he can't cooperate. It doesn't mean that he's not going to. I mean, he's looking at it a lot of time. And we now, putting aside the fact that we have his lawyer out there openly pitching for money, which is a little absurd, but like, you know, we have him as in Cohen, he's got so much information and it's going to be independently cooperated because we know that there was a lot of evidence that was seized. And every day now, within the hour, every hour, you're seeing more and more people that are coming out of the woodwork. And, and remember too, I think Roger Stone's about to get indicted too. And he's a little bit closer to the, the nucleus of this issue of the Russia issue. So I, that's what I meant by the fast unravel. Well, I, and I think that's something we want to come back to. But David, first, I want to give you the chance also to give your take on this past um, week and these events, which you've been able to contemplate as you took the luxurious ride to Australia. Yeah, boy, I really recommend that. Um, so you've got a legal process and a political process. And the question is, where do they intersect? The legal process certainly changed a lot this week. Because fundamentally, if uh, Donald Trump was not president of the United States, the chances are extraordinarily high that he would have been indicted this week along with, uh, with his lawyer, uh, Cohen, and that uh, the only thing that was protecting him from being named a co-conspirator here is the fact that he's president and there's a Justice Department belief or understanding that you can't indict a sitting president. So, I mean, what other conclusion can you come to from the fact that for a single set of facts, uh, Cohen pleaded, uh, pleaded guilty and said that he was operating under instructions uh, from President Trump, and therefore, if, if one of them was involved in that, assuming you believe his testimony— then President Trump would face the same legal jeopardy. And so that's the fundamental legal side. The political side of this is absolutely no Republicans in Congress have stepped up and suggested that this actually now provides the grounds for impeachment. You've seen some columnists do it. Uh, you've seen a lot of Democrats talk about that. You've seen no breaking of the ranks in the Republicans. Now, what does this sound like? What 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 did that frenzy the other day of the two trials 200 miles apart uh, or two court actions to, uh, 200 miles apart remind you of? It reminded you of October 7th, 2016, where at 3.30 in the afternoon, the FBI and the DNI come out and say that it was the Russians behind the hack. And at 4 o'clock, we begin seeing John Podesta's emails uh, appear. And at 4.30, we ended up hearing about the Access Hollywood tape. That was sort of the, the, the most recent super frenzied day. And we all came out of that day saying, there's no way Donald Trump's going to survive this. Well, of course, he then went on a month later to get elected president. The other day, we were saying, there's no way Donald Trump's uh, presidency survives this. And the thinking inside the White House is you can hunker down and make your way through almost anything. Well, that certainly seems to be the thinking. And you've brought up a couple of things here that I'd like to follow up on. But let me go with first one to Katie. The, I, I, one of the things that sort of sticks in my craw, just as, you know, average 
guy from New Jersey who watches all this stuff, um, is um, that even though I now live here in Alexandria, not too far from this courthouse, um, that it's this Justice Department memo that says a sitting president can't be indicted. And I read the Constitution pretty carefully a few times in my life, and there's nothing in the Constitution that says the president can't be indicted. Um, And the question is, you know, how rock solid is this thing? And, you know, how many how many crimes does a president have to commit before the clear (laughs) message is the president's above the law? The president is beyond the reach of the law. You're totally right. You you could read the Constitution forward and backwards, and there is no express immunity given or granted to the president of the United States from being indicted. Um, and I'm just going to look at it from the indictment standpoint, right, not the impeachment standpoint, which is also equally as important as David noted. But um, these two, there's two memos actually that are at play. One from 1973 during the Nixon administration, and one from 2000 during the Clinton administration. And both travel under the underlying kind of concept or principle that there would be this destabilization that would just be so, just critically out of control um, that if we were to indict a sitting president, that it would just just not make sense. And so, you know, when we look at it just from and I'm going to focus just on the Mueller special counsel's you know, point of view. It's almost like a deference that's given, and it's kind of counterintuitive if you think about it, right? It's the Department of Justice. If a crime has been committed or if there's probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed, why are we deferring um, simply because the position is that he's the president of the United States? Well, that is a counterintuitive thing because if you're the Department of Justice, you should be seeking justice regardless of who you are because, quote, no one is above the law. We heard that the other day dealing with Michael Cohen. But, you know, the federal statute that gives Mueller his ability and his power to do what he's doing says that he must comply with the rules and the policies of the Department of Justice, except, and this is what I like, because, you know, laws always have exceptions, except for under extraordinary circumstances. And at that point in time, you consult directly as special counsel with the attorney general. Well, one, Trump's on a freaking roll now about how much he can't stand Jeff Sessions, how cheated he feels and how poor a job that Jeff Sessions is doing. And two, you know, that means who's up, who's up at bat then? Well, that's Rod Rosenstein. And if that's the case, you know, we all have to protect Rod Rosenstein because if, if Mueller decides that this, re- this has reached extraordinary circumstances and then the, maybe he goes to Rosenstein who says, you know what? I am going to allow the indictment of a sitting president. And then I'll put just one little kind of footnote to all of this. This is why Kavanaugh is so important. This is why Brett Kavanaugh is so important to this analysis, because um, obviously, frankly, I think everything's off the table now in terms of a Trump interview with Robert Mueller's team. I think it's done. I think in light of Manafort's conviction, I think in light of what happens with Michael Cohen right now, I think it's over. I don't think it's going to happen absent a subpoena, and Trump's not going to go willingly. So now we're going to have a battle in the Supreme Court, and that kind of dovetails, I think, with what we've now heard about the whether it really is a slow unravel or a fast unravel. And you're going to have a battle in the Supreme Court over the subpoena on, on President Trump. And then if Mueller goes so far as to try to indict him, you're going to have a battle in the Supreme Court over that because the Supreme Court hasn't ruled whether or not you can indict a sitting president. Which is why you kind of need this. I mean, wouldn't the U.S. process normally be that a prosecutor 
tries to indict the president, and then it makes its way up to the Supreme Court to see whether or not that is, in fact, its interpretation of the Constitution. Yeah, there you go. And so if the process works, then you get an ultimate disposition by a Supreme Court. But if you are looking at vacancies on the Supreme Court that need to be filled, then it depends upon who are you going to put in that. And that's kind of the thing about Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, we we know what he we know what he's done. We know what his history has been. And we also know that he has some very telling, you know, law review articles and memos about what his position is on special counsel issues. And so um, that's kind of why Brett Kavanaugh is kind of like a groundhog is poking his head up right now because this is kind of very relevant to him. Yeah, and clearly Trump had that in mind when he picked Brett Kavanaugh. And I think we should come back to that because I think, you know, the the, the, the clearly the reason one of the reasons the Republicans are mute and literally I saw or saw listened to a tape of a somebody trying to ask McConnell a bunch of questions about this and he didn't say anything. He just kept walking. And and, you know, Paul Ryan mute on all of this, these events of this week. And I think one of the reasons they're mute is they're focused like a laser on Kavanaugh. They want to get that in. They don't want to distract from that in any way. Um, And, you know, I guess one of the questions becomes, is Kavanaugh a foregone conclusion? I mean, Sharon, is there anything? Have you heard of anything? Have you heard of anybody say anything that there is anything the Democrats can do, even though the Republicans are not sharing all of his documentation, even though there are all these big looming questions? Or is this just going to happen? Is this guy who was picked, presumably because he might help Trump in these these future cases, a sure thing? I think it's a sure thing. I mean, I think the most, you know, one could get is a delay. I I think as you've seen more of these documents come out, there's no big scandal. Um, But but even more, I don't know. I mean, the Kavanaugh focus in terms of what happens to Trump, I I mean, maybe I'm the outlier here. But when again, when people talk talk about sort of the accelerating end to Trump, when you start to actually walk through what has to happen to get Trump out of office. So there's two different issues. There's, you know, the campaign finance fraud charges. So if if Trump gets implicated in that, do you get back to a John Edwards situation um, who was found not guilty at trial? And then you have the Russian collusion issues or whatever you want to call it, which is going to be a much, much, much harder case to make. Unlike campaign fraud, unlike things that deal with money, trying to connect the dots with the Internet Research Agency, Papadopoulos, the Trump Tower meeting, all of which in some ways are very separate events and make that into a coherent story against Trump is going to be much harder. So again, one has to actually look forward of what are the steps that would have to happen of what Trump could be charged with, what he could be removed for. And I think it's a much longer game than people realize. Well, I think that's a really good point, David. And, you know, I think that one of the things that, um, you know, came out of the week was people were like, oh, well, all this stuff's going to happen. And, you know, Trump's going to, you know, end up, you know, in the dock and he's going to get impeached or, you know, this terrible stuff's going to happen. But, you know, it it there, there are many steps between here and there. And you need not only to, you know, to be impeached, but convicted in the Senate. And I think 
Uh, you need, uh, what is it, two-thirds of the Senate to do that, and that's 67 mm -hmm. votes, and that's really kind of hard to get there. You're not getting that even if the Democrats take over the Senate. Well, you yeah, know, we ba this... barring, barring some, you know, stunning kind of a, of, 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 of right. a scandal. But the, just to finish my point or my question to you, it seems to me, though, that there are kind of two speeds of impeachment we can do in the United States. There's impeachment as it's written in the Constitution, and then there's de facto impeachment. And de facto impeachment is the Democrats take over the House. They launch into seven or 10 or 12 different kinds of investigations into Trump. New scandals are happening every day. And the House doesn't do anything to advance Trump. And the White House is paralyzed and effectively negated as a force. Obviously, they'll try to do things by executive order. But the point is, the presidency becomes neutralized by political standoff combined with constant scandal. And I wonder if that's not the direction we're headed. Well, it could well be. I mean, think we've already had a Congress that has sort of paralyzed itself for several years now without very much major legislation other than the tax cut. And uh, you could see an executive that gets paralyzed a bit, although particularly in the foreign field, the executive has got a huge amount of leeway themselves. So the essence of your question, David, is why do we keep falling into the trap of adding two plus two and expecting it to come out to four? Because what the difference is now is we actually see a clear legal case, and it has nothing to do with Russia and collusion or conspiracy, and it doesn't even have to do with obstruction of justice. It's a pretty straightforward campaign finance violation that's built out of the fairly tawdry story of trying to stop um, a uh, two women from being able to tell their tell their story and and throw money at it the way Donald Trump probably figured that he he did when he was real estate when he was in the real estate business only to discover that in fact that leads you to a campaign violation. And it was notable that uh, he said as soon as uh, the uh, the Cone plea was in, uh, he said, this isn't a crime, right? Well, if it isn't a crime, I'm sure that's that's um, uh, of some interest to Mr. Cone, who just pleaded guilty to it like and is likely to serve it. some time for it, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah. Well, it, not, not, not to mention to the, the, the attorneys of the Southern District of New York, who uh, accepted the plea and, you know, uh, you know, or, or, you know, sort of backed it up effectively uh, in doing so. OK, so the, so the difference now is we understand a legal case that could be pursued uh, uh, for impeachment purposes as a high crime or misdemeanor in the in the in the old meaning of that phrase back to the days of the founders. What you've run up against, though, is the reality that he's unlikely to get impeached, and if impeached, he's almost certain not to get convicted. And the effects that we've seen, Bill Clinton's case being an interesting one, is if you do that impeachment, you don't get the conviction, you may actually sort of build support, as happened for Clinton. Before. So I think the Democrats are looking at this and calculating that they don't necessarily want to run down the impeachment run. They would rather 
freeze his capabilities, as you've discussed, and resolve this at the um, the ballot box. And that requires them to have a compelling alternative candidate. And that's that's for another set of broadcasts. Yeah, although you There's do a problem br- there with that. Oh, sorry. No, no, I was just going to say you bring up a good point, right? Because. Right now, it's in the Republican interest to keep Trump where he is, and that's why it's hard to get to 67 votes. But the Democrats may conclude it's in their interest to keep Trump where he is as they you know, get on the other side of 2018, start looking at 2020. And that's when the Republicans may start to conclude that it's not actually in their interest to keep Trump where he is, um, because if scandal after scandal piles up, um, it's going to make him uh, and them look a lot uglier as we head to 2020. Katie, you wanted to say On the something. other hand, if there's a failed, if there's a failed impeachment uh, effort, it could build support for President Trump. Yeah, the one thing I wanted to say, guys, is, and I will make this concession, a couple of thoughts. One, you could not follow the impeachment route and, and, and say – just let the judicial process follow its way, which would then heavily rely upon, you know, somebody like Mueller or maybe an independent, you know, federal entity or state entity try to do this one way or another, because that was kind of the gem of the process of this trial of Manafort. This juror who went and spoke last night, who said, I, you know, I drove to court every day with my, my make America great again, hat in my, you know, and I'm a big Trump supporter, but I didn't want to find Paul Manafort guilty, but he was guilty, so I had to do it. I mean, you, you, you get that plausible deniability, right, of, well, that's the process, and it's applicable to you whether you're a Republican or a Democrat when you're being prosecuted for violation of crimes. I mean, you could do that and allow that process to run its course if you think that there's a futility in the impeachment process because it's driven by numbers only. But then I will concede the following. The Achilles heel with this whole campaign finance violation, prosecution, or allegations of criminal exposure for Trump is the following. His base doesn't care. They elected somebody that they knew was a philanderer, that they knew was a crude racist, and they did it. And they didn't care. And so if you take the position that this was conduct that was done prior to him being elected president of the United States and ostensibly for the purpose of, you know, trying to smooth ruffled feathers at home so that nobody would know that he was out and about slandering, then I don't really know if the the public at large that supports him is going to care. I don't think that they're going to, I think they're going to maybe give him a hard pass on this and say, you know, I mean, give him a pass on it and say, we don't care because this has nothing to do with jobs. This has nothing to do with the economy. This has nothing to do with, with Russia going back to that common, you know, theme that comes out of the Trump camp. So I think that's kind of the inherent danger about people looking at this campaign finance violation, those two counts in Cohen's, um, information and saying that, oh, look, it's a direct implication of Trump, but it kind of deals with Trump's character. And I think we've realized now that a lot of people just don't care about his character. Well, but like, they'll just take. Let me, let me challenge just one part of that, because I think the rest of sure. it's unchallengeable. But and, and maybe let me direct this this question to, to Sharon as a way, a way to follow up on it. But the, we keep saying a lot of people and we keep saying Trump supporters. There is this kind of mythology around Trump supporters that they're there. And, you know, but first of all, Trump supporters are a fraction of a fraction of of the of the electoral base. Trump lost the 
the the popular vote. Uh, he barely won the vote in a couple of states. Since then, his ratings have gone down. If if even even if if um, seventy or 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 eighty percent of the Republican Party um, uh, uh, supports him still at this point, uh, that 70 or 80% of the half that voted, um, and the, the, you know, half the population didn't even vote. So it's 20 or 20 some odd percent of the electorate. And, you know, this whole mythology could change in November. This whole thing that, you know, Trump's invulnerable and we better not mess with him because he's really the base of the party is, you know, it's all based on, you know, some weird set of events. And one of the things that we found out in the past week is the Russians intervened, Comey intervened, Cohen, you know, paid people off. You know, the the, the way Trump won this thing was with a lot of thumbs on the scale. And I'm Sharon, I'm just, you know, to me, it's a little weird that everybody's still buying into this mythology of the, the the giant Trump base out there and that all these Republicans have chosen and Republican commentators have chosen to die on Mount Trump, this big, <laughs> fleshy orange mountain where, you know, that, th- th- you know, they're like going, we're, you know, we're going to stand by our man. Um, because I think they're afraid of this myth of the of the Trump voter, and all of them are going to be tarred by this brush. Well, isn't that the irony? Because that mythology is the creation of Trump from the first days of the presidency with Sean Spicer going out and talking about the biggest crowds ever at the inauguration, which we know is not true. Um, yes, of course, you know, the, the Republican electorate is diverse. There are diehard Trump supporters. There are people who maybe aren't diehard Trump supporters, but are never going to vote Democrat. But, you know, what has come out of this conversation is once again, is that I don't see any route by which Trump is removed from the presidency other than in a November, meaning through the ballot box. I don't see a good route, whether it's on campaign um, finance violations of the law, which again, John Edwards went to trial for and was found not guilty. Um, The Russia conspiracy collusion, whatever one wants to call it, doesn't make for a convincing criminal prosecution. Um, I think you're exactly right to focus on that. How much support does Trump have, really have, but we would only know that at the ballot box. I think that is where it's going to come down to. Um, Certainly the Mueller investigation did different prosecutions around it are going to contribute to that. I, I could end up being absolutely wrong, but I still don't see a series of events where Trump is removed from office other than through elections. That being said, there's been a lot of unexpected surprises before. Well, that's that. let's talk about that. Uh, and David, let me follow up with you because you've done a lot of coverage of this. There are unexpected surprises. There are also expected surprises. And as we look forward, one of the things that we see here is that Mueller has been extremely careful in building a case and saying, here's what this group of Russians did and here's what this other group of Russians did. And now I'm going to ratchet up pressure on people on the inside who can give us more information about what any Americans who are conspiring with them may have known so that I can make a better case. And I still have Roger Stone and WikiLeaks and the meeting and Don Jr. and anything else that may exist in terms of financial exposure of Trump to the Russians. And, you know, let's set aside for a moment the fact 
that there's you know a New York State investigation into the Trump Foundation and there's an emoluments clause investigation out there and that you know God knows what other scandals will unfold in the Trump administration with Zinke and Ross and all these other characters and then of course there's Jared's finances and Trump's finances well there's a lot of surprises that have we have yet to been exposed to and to say well none of these could affect them or to say well you know, this campaign finance is not enough. I see, you know, Hugh Hewitt, who's a Republican commentator, has like written a piece in the Post. Well, this is not enough to impeach him. Well, this is early days, right, David? I mean, there's a lot more to come. Well, you know, we have the old famous Rothkopf, uh, Rumsfeld, uh, known unknowns and um, unknown unknowns, right? Thank you, thank so, you for linking the two of us together. Well, like I, that. I always something... think of the two. Of, I always think of the two of you sort of in the same breath, right? Yeah, um, thank you. So uh, the um, the known unknowns uh, you've just gone through. The unknown unknowns are the really interesting ones here because what really rattled people in the White House, at least that I talked to, was the depth and specificity of the indictment the other day, now two or three weeks ago, of the Russian members of the GRU who had been responsible for the hack into the into the Democratic National Committee. And um, what, what got to them was that Mueller had managed, without using intelligence sources, to go back and reconstruct actual conversations, emails, presumably by using either 702 powers, getting these from from foreign governments, or doing it through FISA court orders or whatever. But you'll remember the specificity of that indictment was really chilling. You, you saw the actual discussions. And that left a lot of people in the White House wondering whether he could do the same, which I suspect he can, on any issues of conspiracy to involve the Russians in, in the campaign in any way. But we don't know what he has. And even if he had more smoking guns, we now have one legal case in an illegal um, uh, campaign contribution. We may have more that Mueller's done. But I'm really of the camp and always have been that the president isn't going anywhere until you get to the 2020 election. And even then, I don't have 100 percent confidence. And I know, David— You've been of a different view. You've been of a view that he's he's a goner fairly quickly. Well, no, you're partially right there. I, I think he's a goner. I don't think it's fairly quickly. I think that a bunch of these shoes have to unfold. And I think, you know, we had the Manafort trial, Katie, and, you know, we, we went through all of that. But this was the peripheral Manafort trial. We're about to go into the Manafort trial, in all likelihood, in which Manafort um, is revealed to be an operative paid by Russians uh, on behalf of uh, a Russian puppet in Ukraine. And we're going to get a, a little bit of, more of a picture of it. We are undoubtedly going to end up with, I think, um, a Roger Stone trial. We are going to start seeing um, more and more of the case being made that not only did Donald Trump Jr. say, hey, yeah, we'd love to get your dirt on Hillary Clinton. And not only did Donald Trump Sr. say, hey, yeah, 
um, uh, you know, Russia, please give us what you got publicly, but that behind the scenes, there were a number of other factors suggesting closer collaboration, coordination, and in all likelihood, but conspiracy. You, you could have you could have all of that, David, without the direct involvement or the provable beyond a reasonable doubt Absol- absolute, direct involvement and, uh, of the president. Absolutely. I, I totally buy that. But I'm just saying, I, I to me, there is a point at which the bulk of the evidence makes it um, difficult for Republicans approaching 2020 to support him. And I think that's what you asked at the beginning. Right. I mean, you said, is there how many does it take? And there and and no one, no one, including Donald Trump, is able to sustain past a certain tipping point. Um, And eventually people in the GOP are going to start getting nervous because you will find that with the tightening of the news, it's Roger Stone. Then maybe it's Donald Trump Jr. Then maybe it's Jared Kushner. I mean, you, you, you start getting closer and closer to the center of all of this. My concern ha- that has always been in existence about Donald Trump and his involvement is, is he's just a dumb, dumb, dumb guy who didn't really right, have right. I just want to be clear there. The I just want right? to be clear. Those were three dumbs. It was a, yeah, he's a I dumb. Mean, I just, I, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. Can I do like, can I put like, you know, exponentially dumb? Like, yeah. Is he just dumb and he just, but he doesn't have his paws directly dirtied, right? Is this everybody around him acting in concert to build him up and he just didn't know? Well, I mean, even Giuliani implicates his own client. Trump implicates himself when he just lies and the inconsistencies come back. And this June 2016 Trump Tower meeting is going to be so much more important than it already is. Can I jump in there for one second? I actually think the Trump 2016 meeting was a bunch of clowns and not a conspiracy. (laughs) I've long said that. And if you want to try to link Natalia Veselnitskaya to GRU or to the Internet Research Agency, you're going to be digging, digging very, very deep. The one thing no one has brought up here that I think is important to mention is the economy, because it is really the one thing that Trump has been clutching to. You know, stock market is great. The economy is great. Um, I think the one surprise, I mean, maybe even not a surprise is the wrong word. The one thing that could turn everything around is if that goes downhill, because it is the one thing that Trump has been clinging to or saying, if you remove me, it'll hurt the economy. The Republicans are hesitant to come out against him as long as the economy is strong. If that goes downhill, I think that is the the true quick beginning of the end. Yeah, well, I you think know, that I, that's... I would the... agree with that because okay, uh, right. it, one of the, the trade-off of the Trump presidency is ignore the chaos, ignore all the stuff I'm doing, ignore what we're, we're doing with money. immigrants as long, as long as you're making money, yeah. Well, that's what he said this morning. Or that's what he said during the um, his interview, he's right? Pre- he's pretty night. explicit about it. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, I'm not. Imp- I, why would you impeach me? Y'all, y'all are doing so well financially, and the world is so much better, and I've made your life so much better. Why would you impeach me? No, I particularly mm. like the part where he said the stock market would collapse after me, and then he pointed at his head because he said America needs this. You know, sort of America needs. <laughs> I what's, go back to the dumb, dumb, dumb. <laughs> right. America needs what's between Trump's ears. And and it's like, wow, do we? But but I think this all gets to one point, which is on the impeachment front, it, it comes down to the 
the, the question that it's been all along, which is the self-interest of the Republicans involved. And if they see the economy decaying or they see this other stuff, you know, they may shift on this. But I think there's a there's another thing. And I'd love to get, you know, your reactions to all of this. Um, and that is. Trump has demonstrated himself to be capable of doing, you know, some weird things and damaging himself, right? Saying things that are damaging, appointing people who are damaging, having Rudy as his chief spokesperson. And, and you know, I mean, Rudy is, you know. David, not... how could you say that? These are all the best people. Yeah, these are the best people. And and none of them are going to be able to vote for Trump because they're all going to be convicted felons. Um, but, but, but. You know, just take one, you know, a, a, you know, a step further. At some point, if Donald Trump Jr., for example, ends up in the crosshairs, it's also possible that Trump could do something that could be his undoing. In other words, we may not have seen the big act of obstruction. We may not have seen the, you know, the removal of Mueller, the removal of Sessions, the, you know, I'm going to take over the the investigation now. You know, I mean, that was quite an extraordinary statement from him earlier in the week that he thought he could do that. And 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 so that's another part of this story that when people go, well, you know, you haven't proven collusion yet or or this campaign finance stuff is not a big deal. Um we we also haven't seen how Trump handles this. And so far, I mean, so far, he doesn't seem to handle pressure very well. I mean, he was really rattled this week because of all that's happened. And and his family's not in the crosshairs yet. David, let me start with you and then let's go around and 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 sort of play out some of the 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 other unknown unknowns. Well, I do think that it's entirely possible that you could see him get under a set of pressures that he's never been under before. He hasn't had to pay much of a price until this week because he's been in control of Congress and the courts were still catching up with this thing. Should the House uh, flip after this election, you're suddenly going to have real investigative committees with real subpoena power, and that's going to put him on a new form of, of pressure. If, in fact, more of these aides flip because they see where their sentences are heading, that's going to add to his pressure. And, you know, my colleague Maggie Haberman has made the point a few times in the past 24 hours that we've never seen Donald Trump cornered quite like this. And his reaction to being cornered is usually one of lashing out. Now, that may happen or it may not happen. It may happen and not be effective. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that uh, my suspicion is that President Trump ends up building a case against himself every time he tweets or makes some kind of you know birthday cake announcement here. Well, that's you know a good point, Katie, and it's a point that you've made several times um, in in other venues as well. Trump is putting together one of the worst defenses we've ever seen, right? He's got terrible spokespeople. Well, shifting sands. Yeah, like, what is the defense today? I, I did it, but it's not illegal. Or I, I did it, but everybody does it, so we're all guilty. I mean, it's just every day it just changes what it is. Or, or the Sarah Sanders defense, which is um, he did nothing wrong and he's not actually been indicted. Yeah, no, that's a particularly strong defense when the Justice Department won't let him be indicted. Well, if he's not indicted, then he hasn't done anything wrong. But, you know, first, you know, first of all, I mean, you know, all these crimes can come home to roost for him after he leaves. 
And honestly, let me ask you a question, um, Katie, just it, it crosses my mind now. And I, I know you've been a, a prosecutor in, in Florida. Where are the states? The state of New York has done something here. It seems to me there was, there's a, uh, uh, an advantage to, to Mueller and other prosecutors if, if states start bringing charges against these people so they can't be pardoned. Why is there you know, sort of radio silence there generally? Well, okay, so to be clear, the current um, AG for the state of New York kind of took over the mantle from Schneiderman, who, you know, kind of had his disgraceful exit you know, a few months ago. But, but she kind of took over the mantle of this idea, um, and I'm going to speak specifically about New York. Um, there's a current status of the law in New York that would prohibit a subsequent state prosecution for a federal uh, you know, for the same acts or the same transactions or the same criminal transactions, it's kind of this double jeopardy concept. If a defendant pleads guilty and or a jury's been sworn in, you can't prosecute. And they, it's been discussed in the term in, in kind of the confines of the presidential pardon idea. But you're right. I mean, if the states start looking at not only Trump, but Trump-related kids and Trump-related people, um, they can go over and put pressure on. And that's kind of what the states should be doing. And right now, one of the only states is, is really New York. I mean, New York's the only one that's really been kind of saying, I'm going to take the banner and lead the charge and do this. And the current state AG, I think her name is Underwood, I think it's her last name. She's like really aggressive about this. And there's that civil lawsuit I talked about a little while ago um, against the Trump organization, but it's also against the Trump children and against Donald Trump. And, you know, I've always said this from day one, with this administration. It doesn't have to be conspiracy um, with Russia. It doesn't have to be obstruction of justice. It could be one of a number of other offenses that can topple someone. But again, we're kind of coming full circle. It's if your ultimate target is President Donald Trump, how do you do it? And I think that Karen makes a good point about that as well. You know, as always, it's how would you get there? How quickly? And is it really going to be him at the end of the day? Um, all right. Well, let's let's we've only got a couple more minutes here. And so I want to wrap it up by trying to give the uh, deep state nation of nerds out there some kinds of insights that they wouldn't be getting elsewhere. Sharon, when you sort of sit down and talk to your your newsroom and 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 start trying to point reporters in a direction over the course of between now and Election Day. What do you think the big shoes to drop in this are? What are the stories that need to be covered? Are there things that you see coming that are just not in the headlines now because all this other stuff has pushed it out? Um, I think the one thing that's not getting as much attention as it should, although the Washington Post, among others, has done some really good coverage of it, of it are the finances of the Trump organization and some of the real estate purchases he, he made. Um, the big shoe to drop might be if, for instance, his IRS tax returns in full are somehow leaked, um, if a lot more insight is made, whether through the Mueller investigation or otherwise, into the finances of the Trump organization. I've long said, and look, I, I could be wrong, that I, I don't think there's ever going to be a smoking gun 
on collusion with Russia or whatever one wants to call it. I, I think the smoking gun is going to come through money and finances. And I'm not even sure it's going to it's ultimately going to be the, co- the campaign finance violations. Um, there's still a lot of murkiness in how Trump made some of the Trump organization made some of the real estate purchases. I think some major revelation leak of paperwork on that could be the big unknown. OK, David, you know, um, uh, by the way, uh, I, I have to tell you, every day somebody comes up to me and says, what a great book, The Perfect Weapon is. Um, and You're hanging out with the wrong kind of people, clearly. Well, well, I hang out with a lot of nerds, but but oh, OK, but but they're well, spending their good. they're spending their summer reading your book. You know, they're not reading, you know, novels and things. So that does say something about who I'm hanging out with. But we do have the Russians meddling in this election again. And, um, you know, I, I'm just wondering, I, I wonder if we should expect more stories around that as we approach the election. Well, certainly we're spending a lot of effort on it, although I have to tell you that as, as we take this, we're, the, the story of the DNC and their reference to the FBI uh, earlier this week is, is beginning to look like it may have actually just been penetration testing by uh, another group of Americans. It may not have been the Russians, but we have certainly seen the Russians, as Microsoft reported in a, a story we broke earlier this week, um, that they are beginning to go after conservative think tanks that are sticking with the traditional Republican line that you should contain Russia, maintain sanctions, promote democracy instead of going with the Trump line. That tells you that the Russians may have concluded that it's just too complicated to deal with um, more than 400 candidates, 435 in the House, and that third of the Senate that's turning over. And that instead, this is a year to both experiment on techniques that are going to be useful in 2020 and sow more division. And that's one of the things we have to be looking out for. On on the second part, which is, are we going to see more on Donald Trump other than the campaign violation? We may, but we may not. And I'm I'm pretty suspicious uh, of the likelihood that you would see something that would really be concrete. Might be surprised. And like I said before, we don't know what Mueller Mueller has at this point. We really have no idea. But uh I'm suspicious that you're going to see something that would be such an overwhelming violation that even Republicans would come to the conclusion that he had to go. Yeah, although one of the things, by the way, that several people that I've talked to have pointed to is that the CFO of the Trump organization is certainly going to end up in the crosshairs. And the digger they, the, the deeper they dig into the Trump organization's finances, um, the more likely it is yeah, that other kinds that, of problems emerge, right? You read that complaint, uh, the one to which uh, uh, th- that we saw in court the other day, and it sure makes the Trump organization look like they set up a series of sort of personal cover-up funds for, for their founder. Yeah, it, exactly. And and we don't know about, you know, other deals and money laundering and other all, 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 all manner of other kinds of things. Katie, to, to, to sort of wrap this up, I'd like you to do something which people do at their jeopardy, I think, through, throughout this process. But I think uh, I have faith that you'll, you, you, you can do a good job at it. And that is sort of put yourself inside, if not the mind of, of Robert Mueller, inside 
the mind of his team, you know, as they sort of figure out a strategy. Because as I said earlier, it seems to me they're really very methodically building a case. And the question becomes, you know, because there's all this stuff, you know, Rudy's like, well, they're going to be over tomorrow at lunchtime because, you know, they got to be because it's September, you know, there, there's all this kind of idiocy people say about this. But it seems to me there's several more very clear steps to this process. And, and I was just wondering if that's your perspective. And if so, what are those? My admiration for Robert Mueller, and I have consistently said time and time again, um, when I've uh, done hits is the following, you don't hear from him. And the only time he speaks is through an indictment. And now he's speaking through guilty verdicts. Um, and I think, and I'm not trying to over sensationalize or over heroize. I just made a verb up, right? Um, Robert Mueller. I, I'm just saying that the the underestimation of what M- Robert Mueller has is ultimately the downfall, I think, for somebody like Trump and his arrogance. I mean, the treasure trove of information that was obtained from Michael Cohen, we have no idea. It's millions of items and documents. There's tapes, I'm sure, more so than the Omarosa tapes. And that is what is ultimately going to dictate not only the efficacy of his investigation and where it goes, but the speed by which it happens. But nobody is going to make this thing happen any faster than what Robert Mueller wants it to do in the speed by which he's making things happen. But I think that you're finding that there are consistent production of indictments and that there are consistently people that are closer and closer to Donald Trump. And that is the reason why I stand by the proposition and my kind of crystal balling here, which is it's ultimately going to get on Donald Trump. And then then in the end, it depends on whether or not Robert Mueller takes it that one step farther, which we talked about, which is going the distance and saying, we are not going to sit by idly and not indict a president just because he sits in office. And it really rises to that level of the extraordinary circumstances. And collectively, Sharon and both David's, we know we've talked about people like Wessel Burke. We've talked about other people that are inherently at the Trump organization that know how the organization was run. And even that information, like David just said, for Cohen talks about members of the campaign, people that worked at the Trump organization, David Pecker over at AMI. There are people that were so tightly involved in that nucleus of, of that nuclear family for Trump that they know stuff. And that's why they're going to cooperate because they don't want to be indicted and they don't want to go to jail. I mean, that's ultimately your self-preservation kicking in. And that self-preservation instinct is going to isolate Donald Trump. And I find it bizarre that we haven't heard from Rudy Giuliani yet. And all we keep on getting are these tweets from Donald Trump and now his interviews from Fox News. But, you know, we'll we'll definitely get some more destruction of credibility toward Giuliani pretty soon, I'm sure. Well, every time he opens his mouth, we get destruction of credibility from Giuliani. I mean, he and Alan Dershowitz seem to be in a contest to see who can destroy what was once a great reputation faster. Um, but they're, they're Giuliani's, down to... Giuliani's winning on that one. And I don't know. I think they're both down to crumbs. You know, there's 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 not much left for 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 either one of them. You know what you're saying, Katie, though, reminds me of a conversation I had when I was waiting to go on at at the Lawrence O'Donnell show the other night. And I was talking to Jennifer Rubin in the green room and we were talking about all this and we were saying, you know, the, the Republican Party stayed with Nixon right up until the point that there were tapes and the revelation of the tapes was 
you know, dispositive in the, in the public view towards this thing. And had there not been tapes, which Nixon then destroyed, right? If there, there had not been this kind of uh, physical destruction, he might have served out his term. Uh, and I think you you can look at that both ways. You know, uh, it, it, you know, there there was a lot of loyalty around him even under those circumstances, and there are revelations to come of things that we don't know about that could end up being the 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 triggers in all of this. Um, we're going to obviously end up dis- discussing uh, this. Those unknown unknowns. Yeah. No. The, yeah. The, right. The Rothkoff Rumsfeld unknown unknowns. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Something you're trying to trying. I'm sure. But tomorrow morning when I look at Twitter, they're going to be a hundred you know, people from Deep State Radio Network saying, I want the Rumsfeld Rothkoff unknown unknowns on a mug or a T-shirt or something like that. And th- those Maybe will all pictures. Yeah, right. And those will all be produced in the mug factory in the basement of the Sanger compound in Vermont, um, where all of our mugs are actually produced. You have no idea they're they're made from we've. We, we, we've actually shipped those jobs all out to Mexico and China, as you know, for our mugs. I know, but we're using Vermont <laughs> pond mud. We use Vermont <laughs> pond mud to make them all. Um, That's true. Yeah. In, in any event, we're going to keep on top of this. And before I thank everybody, I do want to remind our listeners that during the week of September 10th, we're going to launch DeepStateRadioNetwork.com, which is going to give you a chance to go to one place and and get all the podcasts but there's also going to be some additional pod content including uh brief you know sort of rants op-eds from different people expert deep dives from different people regular uh daily updates that we're going to offer to members a members only part of the site um and and a and a swag shop where people are going to be able to get whatever is made in the sanger basement in vermont um, and, uh, if you, if you, if you sign up early, you will get a discount to the members, um, uh, only part of this thing. Uh, and the best way to do that is to go to deep state radio network.com right now. Uh, give us your email and we will send you out that offer. And, uh, and by the way, if you, uh, later on bring other people into this thing, the, the discounts increase, what we're trying to do is build a community here. Uh, we think, that community has been great. We've loved to watch the growth of the book club and some of the other things that have, have sprung up out of this. Um, and our goal is to offer more from our experts to all of you and to try to create a bigger conversation with everybody who's in the Deep State Radio Network. So please go to deepstateradionetwork.com. Give us your email. We'll send you out some some discounts to joining all of this. And we really, really look forward to the fall where there's going to be more great kind of conversation from great experts like you've heard today on deepstateradionetwork.com. Uh, thank you, David, in far off Australia. Thank you, Katie, in beautiful Miami. Thank you, Sharon, in dreary Washington. Um, uh, uh, you have all been great, and I really very much hope that we will be talking to all of you again very, very soon. Uh, and thanks to all of you out there, uh, Deep State Radio nerds, for listening to this special episode, uh, Trumpocalypse Now, here on the Deep State Radio Network. Thank you, everybody. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio.
If you don't, we know where to find you.